Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Gurad Banerjee, who's a mathematician in the School of Science and Technology at Middlesex University, London. He has worked on a variety of problems at the interface between dynamical systems and combinatorics with applications to real-world systems with a network structure, including in biology and chemistry. Welcome, Murad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks for doing this. So our topic uh, today is the pandemic uh, in India, it has been going on for at least 18 months now, perhaps even longer. Um, I have a great interest in this, Murad. My, my parents still live in the uh, southern state of Kerala. I've been looking at uh, a lot of the data over time. Uh, was very confusing in many ways. So you're working on a, uh, on a paper uh, looking at excess mortality in India in, in different states. Um, so excess mortality, if I understand this correctly, Murad, is we have an expectation of mortality in the absence of the pandemic, and we can actually see the mortality along with the pandemic, and the difference between the two is what we're calling excess mortality? That, that's right, yes. Um, so we have a kind of sense of what baseline um, mortality ought to be, and then we're looking to see what has actually happened during the pandemic. Um, in India, I mean, you have some complicating factors, such as that um, not all deaths are registered, and the level of death registration varies from state to state. And in some cases, um, the level of death registration may have itself been affected during the pandemic. So this kind of introduces some complicating factors to trying to understand excess mortality data. But nevertheless, when you um, put it together, we seem to have enough credible data emerging to be fairly certain that there's been a huge surge in mortality during the pandemic. So if you look at historical data, do we have an expectation of um, registration and uh, death registration percentages? Um, you know, uh, historically, what percentage got registered? Do we know that? Well, the latest official estimate is 92 percent. 
um, of deaths being registered in the country. Um, many people, myself included, regard this as uh, overestimates, not a massive overestimate, but something of an overestimate, because there are different ways of trying to estimate the levels of death registration. For example, there are different surveys which um, attempt to do precisely this. And in one case, for example, there's something, the NFHS, the National Family Health Survey, which specifically asks people about whether a death occurred and whether it was registered. And what you get by looking at that data is a slightly lower level of registration than you get um, than the official kind of government estimate for 2019. Um, but let's just say that death registration is probably somewhere between 80 and 90%. Most of the different estimates agree on that. So between 80 and 90% of deaths are registered in India. But this varies a lot from state to state. So there are some states where that number is probably effectively 100%, and there are some states where it's around 50%. So you do get a big variation. So 80 to 90%, it still seems low for modern standards. So we are missing, let's say, 15% of the deaths. Um, they, they, they should be different. Uh, so let me ask you this. So between cities and um, rural areas, um, do we know sort of the differential um, between cities and rural areas? Um, well, I personally don't, because meaning I don't have enough in-depth knowledge. I do know that, for example, in some states, um, and in particular the populous states of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, those are two of the kind of major states where you have incomplete registration and you also have large populations. So um, between them, they actually pull down the total level of death registration in the country quite significantly. And if you removed those two states from uh, the national picture, then in fact, you find a much higher level of death registration nationally, um, you know, probably well into the 90s, um, mid 90. Uh, 95% or above even. Um, so really, it is a very kind of diverse picture. In some parts of the country, by looking at death registration data, you get a very good sense of what's happening with mortality. And in other parts of the country, I think you need to have probably other methods to try to fill in the gaps if you want to understand mortality. Yeah, so um, so, so when we look at excess mortality, I guess we, uh, so the one assumption is, uh, let's say the death registration rate was not affected by COVID. If you make that assumption, let's say we are reasonably okay there. Um, what do we find in terms of excess, excess mortality? Um, I know that the, when I looked at mortality rates across different states, I was really puzzled. Um, and we can talk more about this. I, I, you have a paper on this actually. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm, my parents live in Canada, and I was really puzzled by the mortality rate in Canada compared to its neighboring states. It, it was off by a factor of three or four. Um, and you could only justify it. I, I'm talking initial data. I don't know what the latest data is. Uh, and you know you could you could think of this, maybe they're not counting all deaths. Um, or you know I was I was wondering if there is some sort of, endemic infection rate that gives them some, some protection. I mean, I know that there has been a lot of speculation on, on these, these things. So let me ask you more broadly, what is your conjecture on the, the mortality, the excess mortality rates being very different between states? 
So I think that there are genuine differences because there are genuine differences in how the epidemic has unfolded. Um, I'll come back to Kerala in a moment, you know, because I think it's quite an interesting and quite a specific case. It's also in some ways um, something of an outlier. It's some, it's a rather had a rather different COVID trajectory from many other parts of India. So we do expect some differences. Um, once you have attempted to correct for various factors, including differing levels of registration and the availability of the data, because the data you have isn't always uh, all registered debt. Sometimes it's whatever debts are registered in an online system, and that itself might be incomplete. So once you've corrected for these various factors, actually what I find is that the story doesn't diverge that much between different states, uh, especially after the second wave. So if you looked at the story up to the beginning of the first wave, then you saw really quite wide variation in levels of mortality across the country. And I think that the first wave really hit different states and different parts of the country quite unevenly. Um, you know, um, there was probably some connection with urbanization. You know, are there many big cities in the state? There might be other connections that we don't fully understand about how much COVID spread. But definitely there were big variations between states and between even within a state between localities. By the end of the second wave, you've actually got quite widespread visible both in seroprevalence data and in mortality data across most of the country. And we have to remember that mortality data, as you mentioned, for the second wave is still incomplete. It's still kind of coming in a little bit at a time. So Kerala actually is a state which, you know, I've looked at quite carefully and it's got its own particularities, its own interesting features. So I think the epidemic was much better controlled in Kerala during the first wave. We saw this because when the state government did its own sero surveys um, and when the national sero surveys reported from districts in Kerala, we saw considerably lower levels of infection in the state than we were seeing na nationally. Um, we also saw from those sero surveys that the elderly had actually lower levels of infection than the general population. So there had been some kind of protection of the elderly, by what means I don't know, but you could see this in Sarah's survey data and you didn't see this in other parts of the country really, you know, this kind of protection of the elderly. So I think that led to actually lower mortality in Kerala than in many other parts of the country. But it also meant that there was kind of continuing vulnerability because you had uh, lower levels of infection, prior infection, and hence you had more people susceptible um, to infection during this latest Delta wave. Um, and so it's kind of in some ways what Kerala is, what's happening is Kerala is paying the price for um, a relatively successful uh, attempt to control the disease, but you still have a large number of people who are susceptible and that's why you have this continuing epidemic. Another thing I should say about Kerala is that when, when it comes to understanding its excess mortality data, there do appear to have been some drops in the kind of baseline level of registration. I think to find out what happened, what has happened, we will have to wait a little while and we might get a clearer picture after some time, after some more investigation. But I think to interpret the mortality data from Kerala, it's useful to um, consider whether there has been a drop in registration in the state as well during the pandemic. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so one complication obviously is you're talking about case mortality rate. Um, essentially, the denominator is the cases we know exist. Um, the infection mortality rate could be quite different, um, and we can't really compute it without knowing the denominator, right? 
Well, actually, what I'm talking about at the moment is just the mortality rate, where the denominator is really the population. So um, one of the things that is worth kind of starting with is the simplest um, expression of mortality, which is how many excess deaths have occurred um, for a given number of people in the population. But yes, you're right. You can you can take the denominator as cases or you can take the denominator as infections. And if you take the denominator as cases, um, I think you have a very confusing picture because states are surveilling their epidemics much better or much worse. So we know that Kerala is actually managing to pick up a much higher proportion of its infections. It's finding a lot more cases than many parts of the country. The reason that we know that is because we also have serosurvey data. And the data from serosurveys at least allows us to estimate how many infections have occurred. And so when we compare how many cases Kerala is picking up to how many infections have occurred, we're seeing that perhaps Kerala is picking up maybe 20 to 25% of its infections um, in its cases, in its kind of recorded data. Now that might sound low, you know, to be picking up one in four or one in five of all infections, but this is vastly higher than the national average. I mean, the national average, according to um, all the available recent data from the third national serosurvey, the fourth national serosurvey, it's probably something like one in 30 infections are being picked up nationally. So if we compare Kerala picking up one in four or one in five infections to the national picture, one in 30 infections, and then in some states, one in 100, so 1% of infections are being picked up, perhaps even less, you see this huge variation. So if you use cases as the denominator in the calculation of mortality, you're going to get a very confused picture. It's really going to reflect differing surveillance. So it makes much more sense to try to use infections estimated using serosurvey data instead of using cases. As you say, that what, what you would like to estimate is called the infection fatality rate. So that's uh, fatalities as the numerator and infections as the denominator. Yeah, so so what, what you're doing here in the excess mortality, that's not a problem because you're looking at population-wide. So you had Correct. you have 1 million people, you've expected, I'm just making this up, uh, 10,000 to die pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, we find 15,000 died. So the 15,000 minus 10,000 is the excess mortality we are attributing that to COVID, uh, and so so those complications, uh, the the CFR CF uh, case case based mortality or infection mortality do not arise. Um, this has some policy implications, right? So there has been a lot of debate around. Yeah, you you can actually try to control infection rate, but as you say, you're going to get hit in the later later part of the cycle. So. Let me ask you, this is speculation, um, what is sort of the optimum policy here? Assuming that, you know, if we get vaccinations in abundance, we get high compliance to vaccination, then delaying um, infection is optimum, one would think. But in the absence of vaccinations and compliance, is delaying the inevitable that useful? Well, I think we have to assume that we're going to be able to keep up with vaccination. I think that's, um, we, otherwise, you know, we really are in a kind of catch-22 situation. Um, so if we were to say, consider some uh, state like Kerala, which has managed to delay its epidemic, my guess would be that when all is said and done, when we kind of have a reckoning, let's say at the end of this year, 
if we have enough data to actually assess mortality, mortality will have been reduced. It will have been reduced because the state managed to delay its epidemic sufficiently to vaccinate a large fraction of people and particularly to vaccinate those who are most vulnerable to severe disease, so um, especially vaccinate the elderly. So, I mean, it's always going to be worthwhile trying to slow down an epidemic to give yourself time to vaccinate as large a fraction of the population as you possibly can, and particularly focus the vaccination on those who are at highest risk of severe COVID. Um, I don't think that um, an argument that, okay, we should let the disease rip through because we're not going to be able to save lives anyway, let's get it over with. I don't think that ever makes sense. I think there are so many flaws in that argument. You have overwhelmed systems. We saw during the second wave how there were probably many avoidable deaths simply from the fact that oxygen ran out, that hospitals were full. We saw people who were kind of quite middle-class, well-off people unable to access hospital care and dying in car parks. You know, that was very much a consequence of the fact that the wave ripped through at very high speed. Now, if that wave could have been slowed down, it would have given more time for vaccination. It would have avoided some of the overloading of the healthcare system. There could have been time to ramp up you know, production of oxygen and supply and distribution of oxygen. So I think there are just so many reasons why it always makes sense to try to slow down um, the epidemic, um, to buy time and to give yourself a chance to prepare. Yeah, the other policy question that's sort of related to this, uh, Murad, that comes up is, you know, from a global perspective, what, what we have done is to say the, the developed countries have higher vaccination rates and the developing countries don't. Uh, I have been of the opinion that it's difficult to get London and New Jersey vaccinated, um, you know, with, with India and Africa hanging out there. Uh, and that's because we have mutations. We, we probably have a thousand variations uh, of COVID in the system now, which is a function of the viral load. So to the extent that the world cannot control the entire viral load in the system, it doesn't really matter to have patchy, um, in patchy vaccination compliance rates. And we are sort of suffering uh, with that in, in, uh, in the US now, where the certain states are uh, highly vaccinated, certain states are not. It, it seems to be happening in India as well. So unless we get to a global um, you know, quite a bit of policy. Are local uh, compliance vaccination going to be that effective? Well, I mean, I think the broad spirit of your question is correct, which is that really you can't exit from the pandemic without a global solution. Um, any solution is going to have to be a global solution. And um, where you have very uneven vaccination, and in some, if there are parts of the world where disease is spreading, then you always have the risk of new variants arising and new variants which are even more transmissible or which are more able to evade immunity. And of course, we've seen this happen already. We've seen all the different variants of concern as we now know them, including Delta um, arising almost certainly because of high levels of spread. But I think that we still have a good shot at, okay, there's going to be inequity. We know that. But we have a good shot at just trying to improve coverage as fast as we can globally. Yes, there's no point one country just doing a really good job all on its own from the point of view of the pandemic. We have a shot of trying to improve coverage globally, um, reduce the risk that the next variant of concern will come about and will be even more transmissible. So um, 
we can't be sure. We can't be certain that we'll, that that uh, this will succeed. But I still think that there's a chance of doing that. Um, and I think people really have to have an eye to this question of equity that you raised. And people need to be thinking about whether any strategy which leaves parts of the world unable to access vaccines is a meaningful strategy for controlling a pandemic. And of course, it is not. What is your take on the Swedish use case? I, I don't know the data uh, in detail, but I have had a lot of sort of anecdotal observations. Uh, so Sweden's policy early on was sort of liberal. Uh, they, they didn't really have lockdowns. Um, and uh, they had a little bit of a higher higher rate than rest of Europe uh, early on. But they seem to, seem to have done extremely well after that at least anecdotally. I, I haven't really seen the data. Do you have more of a sense of what happened in Sweden? I, I actually haven't followed Sweden after, in fact, the very early days of the pandemic. So I don't have a good sense of it. But I, I would say that when one's trying to understand what unfolds in different countries, I think you need to choose what are the comparator countries properly. Which countries do you compare with? So in the case of Sweden, it would be very important to compare against the other Scandinavian countries um, countries which have similar levels of population density, which have similar um, healthcare systems. Um, I also believe that, you know, so Sweden, I think, was worse hit than its neighbors, certainly than Denmark and Norway. Um, and it's important to realize that even in Sweden, although in theory the line was not much mitigation, there actually were mitigations in place. Sometimes what the kind of government line is or what the official line is doesn't really reflect the reality of the fact that people do change behavior. People are more cautious. Things don't proceed as normal. Um, so when you're studying kind of how mitigation of various kinds has affected the pandemic, I think it's quite easy to be drawn into, well, okay, such and such country didn't really lock down and yet they managed to get away with something. Um, but when you look at the detail, you'll find that actually, yes, mitigation did play a very crucial part um, in slowing down the disease in kind of reducing levels of infection and mortality. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. We can't just look at what politicians say. We have to look at what they do, uh, which is often uh, two different things. But the good thing about this iteration, Murad, uh, we seem to have done different experiments. Uh, at one end of the spectrum, we have New Zealand, um, you know, sort of, uh, they had the advantage of being an island. Uh, they could shut down all their airports and have a full lockdown and get the get the disease out very successfully. It looks to me, uh, and we have you know other countries um, running different types of experiments. So exposed, um, I guess we should have a good policy cross section here, right? Uh, I mean, I, I believe this is just one iteration. This is this is coming back to us at a later time. Uh, the bad thing about humans, I think, is that we don't really learn from our mistakes. Typically, we, we keep doing them over and over again. So from a United Nations perspective, what would you say expose what they should do to, to really once all the data come in? Um, is there a body is sort of a pandemic? body who, you know, who would have the authority and, and uh, visibility to actually tackle the next one? Well, um, short of tackling the next one, I think we will need to, there's still a lot of learning to be done. And um, there's still a lot of 
um, stories which are unfolding across the world. So one of the things that we've learned is that if you take official pandemic data at face value, you get a very skewed picture of what's happening in many parts of the world. So you miss a lot of the, uh, the kind of impact of the pandemic in Asia and Africa. Um, you miss some part of it in Latin America, perhaps not quite as badly as you do in Asia and Africa, and you miss a smaller fraction of the impact in the United States, North America, in um, Europe. So if you just try to construct stories based around official COVID data, you can sometimes end up with very incorrect stories. On the other hand, if you look at quantities like excess mortality, you look at them kind of carefully. So you also try to understand, well, what is baseline mortality in a country? What is mortality in normal times? By what percentage did it surge during the pandemic? Then you find that um, the stories change quite a lot. So as you mentioned earlier, there were a lot of these narratives about how India had escaped relatively lightly, um, especially during the first wave. But even when we look back to the first wave, if we look at mortality data, that isn't true. Um, India's excess mortality, by my calculations, was still over one million during the first wave. Um, it's not as uh, dramatic as it might have been if the country had been an older country. If you had an older population, that number would undoubtedly have been higher. So there was some um, protection afforded by a young population, but there was still a very high level of mortality. And it was still roughly what you expect given the level of spread in the first wave in the country. Um, so the main thing is that if we're going to try to understand what's happened in this pandemic and hopefully to mitigate what might happen in the next or in the next phase of this pandemic, if there are more phases, we really need to be gathering the right kind of data. And I think one role that bodies like the UN can have is to put some pressure on governments to be more tra transparent with the data that they are gathering. In some cases, this is data which is being gathered, but it's not being released. It's not being made visible publicly. Um, and in some cases, to ask governments to kind of improve their actual systems of recording um, the impact of the pandemic and of recording mortality. Um, I'm not sure how much uh, effect a body like the UN will be able to, how much pressure they'll be able to place on governments, but that would be something that I feel that they could usefully do. Yeah, I really like this approach, uh, Murad, you know, looking at excess mortality, baseline expectation, and look at the total excess mortality, because it's very complicated from a registration perspective. There are a lot of comorbidity issues. So if you are dying of a heart attack while you are COVID infected, are you dying of COVID or dying of heart attack will be, will be a tough question to answer sometimes, right? But the, the, the population-wide metrics don't suffer from those types of complications. Correct, exactly right. I mean, so um, yes, there are difficult issues with how you classify COVID deaths and how you record them. Um, the, I think the kind of broad advice from the WHO and including from many national kind of health bodies, including in India, is that you take a liberal definition of what is a COVID death. If somebody dies while infected with COVID, shortly after being infected with COVID, chances are it's a COVID death. Um, even if they have comorbidities, that's not a reason not to count that death as a COVID death. If COVID accelerated 
um, death. It still took away years from their life. And it's important to kind of recognize that rather than trying to classify deaths in terms of whether people had comorbidities or not. You know, many people have comorbidities. People who are healthy and are going to live long lives have comorbidities. So to try to devalue those lives in some way by kind of raising that issue is problematic. But also, as you say, excess mortality data in a way kind of sidesteps those problems. When we look at that data, we don't necessarily say all of these are COVID deaths, but I think we say these are pandemic deaths. And then at least we have a handle on the scale of the devastation that the pandemic is causing. And in a way, it's almost not necessarily useful to get into a debate about what fraction of these deaths were COVID deaths, because we may never actually be able to find out. We may never have the exact data to know that, but we do know that the pandemic caused a huge surge in mortality. Um, and we do we can align that with what the epidemic has done, you know, with some epidemiological data and say, yes, probably many of these were COVID deaths, if not all of them, probably many of them were. Um, but it, almost it doesn't matter. A death is a death. It's a pandemic death. It's almost certainly as a consequence of the pandemic. Yeah, the other uh, issue, uh, I don't think you're dealing with it in the paper, but it's just starting. And that is the sort of long-term effects of COVID. Uh, uh, people had severe COVID, sometimes called long COVID, uh, has CNS issues. Uh, I was told that uh, the 1918 um, Spanish flu uh, pandemic, a uh, couple of million people who survived it had Parkinson's disease 10 years later. Uh, so there, there, is a, there is sort of a disease burden question uh, here that we haven't really even started to put data on. Um, and, you know, uh, loss of smell. I mean, a lot of the uh, uh, um, symptoms that we see are all sort of implicated in some CNS issue uh, with, uh, with long COVID. Um, is that something that you're looking into or it's probably too early to, to get really good data on that? Um, I'm, I'm not personally looking into it, but I know that people are looking into it and I do believe evidence, as you say, that many people are going to suffer long-term effects. We don't yet know what fraction of people who have been infect, uh, infected are going to have long-term effects, long-term kind of after effects. Um, we do know that after many viral infections, in fact, you can have, um, you know, post-infection problems which last months or even years. So it's not a unique thing to COVID. So we you know, the cautious view would be that we have to, until we have really good data, we have to assume that there's going to be a big burden, um, which is on top of the actual infections and deaths which we experience right now. In the future, there might be a burden as well. That would be the cautious view. And as the data comes in, we'll be able to measure that more. If you look at somewhere like India, there hasn't been enough study of long COVID. There's some discussion of it. I've seen um, so far only one actual study. There might be more, but I've seen the results of one study on long-term after effects of infection. And that study indicated that there was quite a significant number, a fraction of the kind of um, infected population who were suffering long-term after effects. I think I would really like to see more such studies being done, you know, follow-ups of people um, months and perhaps even years after infection so that we can figure out what this burden is going to be. And your general point is that mortality is not the only way we measure a burden is correct. You know, we need to think about the effects of the pandemic beyond mortality. In this case, you're looking at morbidity, you're looking at illness. 
for people, even if they don't die directly as a result of the infection. Yeah, so given that uncertainty, as you mentioned before, Murad, optimum policy has to be minimizing infections. And so what are actions you can take? Uh, distancing, uh, masking, uh, making vaccines available, compliance to vaccines, minimizing infections is sort of the simple objective function given the uncertainty around the burden, which we haven't even started to started to tackle. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, a number of narratives developed early on in the pandemic, which completely ignored the fact that we have an unknown virus here. We have a virus which is new and we don't know what the long term implications are going to be. And, um, you know, the kind of the discourse which centered around, well, if we let infection pass through a population, we'll get it over with in some sense. You know, we protect the vulnerable, the um, I don't know how much you follow these debates, but the kind of Great Barrington type ideas, which were very flawed in my opinion. Um, so yes, I think even now, late, kind of late on in the pandemic in some sense, the emphasis must be on minimizing new infections. And that's a much more kind of, um, we've got lots of different knowledge and much more than we did at the start of the pandemic about how we might do this. We understand we have vaccines, of course, so that's one way of trying to cut down infections. We understand much more about transmission. We understand how crucial, for example, ventilation is. We understand how much more easily transmission occurs indoors. You know, we understand how um, the, the kind of, we have studies now on masking. There was recently a study which came out from Bangladesh, uh, quite a large scale study, which showed the benefits of masking in reducing transmission. So we have a lot more data to understand how we can cut down on transmission and cut down on infections. It, it becomes more realistic now than ever before to say we need to minimize infections. And that's why for me, it's frustrating that at this stage in the pandemic, you still have voices arguing, oh, well, now we've kind of, we might as well just let infection pass through a population where we've actually got so, many, so much more in our arsenal of combating infection than we did near the start of the pandemic. It seems extra pointless to make an argument like that to me. Yeah. So I, I know that you have looked at state by state and you talked about the variations that you see. So I wondered, Murad, could we take a quick tour uh, through India uh, in different states? Uh, so we've got Uttar Pradesh and Bihar uh, up north. They are, they are um, very popular states. So what do we see there? What has you know, what, what were the policies? What were the effects? What do we know? Well, one, one thing about some states in India, including Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, is that actually the data is more limited. So, for example, um, Bihar, we have some mortality data. Um, it's not of the highest quality, but it's reasonable. It's, it, um, it tells us that there was a major surge in the state in mortality. It tells us that probably the number of people who have died is roughly as we would expect, given the level of spread in the state, which has been high. So uh, it's a young state, Bihar. So we would expect somewhat lower mortality than, say, in the southern states, which tend to be older demographically. But in Bihar, there has been a surge in mortality. We have some data from Uttar Pradesh as well. Um, obtained via uh, a, a, what's called an RTI, so a right to information kind of um, request was made and some data is obtained, but the data is of very poor quality. It shows, it appears to show again a major surge in mortality during the pandemic in Uttar Pradesh, but I 
personally haven't felt comfortable actually using that data because there are major discrepancies with historical data and with what we find in official reports from, say, 2019. Um, so I kind of haven't felt comfortable using that. But my suspicion is that you've probably had very high levels of mortality. There were lots and lots of newspaper reports coming out mainly in the Hindi press around the time of the second wave. Um, talking about rural mortality. So there were kind of village case studies where reporters um, had tip-offs about quite a large number of deaths in a village and they would travel there and speak to local residents. And when you compile together those, and you kind of estimate, you know, what might have been transpiring in the state as a whole, it looks like there was a very kind of uh, dramatic surge in um, the levels of death that were occurring at that time. So, um, my main feeling about some of those states in the north where um, governance is poor and data is poor is that we need to have surveying to actually get at the heart of what happened in those states. We need to have um, large-scale mortality surveying where people are asked about deaths in the family when they occurred um, to get a sense of what might have actually happened. Um, that doesn't mean that these states have necessarily been hit worse or better. I, I don't know. I don't feel that the data is good enough to be able to say that one way or another. My guess would be that in terms of how much infection has spread, it's probably been high, but then that's true across the country. The Fourth National Sarah Survey gives us some headline figures, and it certainly says that Bihar and UP have, been, um, have seen very high spread. But that's from a few districts in each state, you know, so it doesn't cover the whole state. It's, it's from... A, subset of the districts. And as far as we can tell, yes, COVID has ripped through um, many of these parts of the country. Yeah, people often bring up density uh, as a factor. Uh, but the beauty of excess mortality is that uh, it, it, you can take out all those all those factors, right? We are, we are looking at excess deaths and the, and the denominator is the population. Um, but do you see in the data, uh, for example, southern states uh, have a higher level of uh, excess mortality compared to northern states or anything like that? Um, not clearly so. I mean, it, it, it's the case that we have a lot more data from the southern states. So we are able to see what's been going on in the southern states. Um, with the exception of Telangana, we've got data from, in fact, all of the southern states, and it's quite decent quality data. So we, uh, we see that within the southern states, there's quite a lot of variation. Andhra Pradesh has been very badly hit in terms of mortality. As far as the data went in Kerala, not so much. But of course, Kerala's epidemic has continued since then. So we haven't got very recent data. Um, the northern states, we have patchy data. So some of the northern states, like I would count Punjab as a northern state, it's actually mortality data says it hasn't been as bad as some of the southern states. So we can't say for certain whether that's part of a trend or whether that's a kind of, whether Punjab is in some ways is an exception. I don't think we'll find that full story for a little while. But I do think that density, population density, and probably factors like urbanization played a major part in explaining what happened during the first wave in particular. So I think we did see there was kind of some kind of signs, at least in the data. It wasn't very clean data, but there was enough in, in the data to say that in more urbanized states where you had higher population density, you probably had more rapid spread. Um, and although COVID got into some rural areas in the first wave, it didn't rip through rural areas. 
On the other hand, in the second wave, I think you saw COVID really running riot in rural areas across northern India in particular, and parts of southern India. Um, but like you saw it in Madhya Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh comes out as, that's, you know, central India, that comes As far as I can tell, that during the second wave, you really had COVID reaching the villages. Um, and I, I think these were villages which were to some extent spared the first time around. Maybe COVID just didn't get in. It did, or, you know, maybe one or two infected people might have returned, but this didn't spark a mini epidemic within the village. Whereas maybe what happened during the second wave was because these variants are so much more coming back into the village and then setting off an epidemic is much higher. And then you had a lot of mobility around the time that the, the second wave was starting. You had people moving about. There, were no, there was no national lockdown. There was no particular mitigation in place. You had elections going on. You had religious gatherings. So you had all this mobility, movement of people. So I really think that that brought disease into the rural heart of India. And that's why you've seen such huge devastation, huge devastation. Okay. So the other thing I was, you know, I was thinking about is, uh, again, going back to excess mortality, it is a function of, as you mentioned, age uh, of the population, comorbidity. So has there been any analysis that, you know, uh, at the simplistic level, some sort of a regression controls for the factors we know truly influence excess mortality? Uh, and to look at, you know, sort of state-by-state state data? Um, well, the only factor that I've actually tried to look at um, is has been age at a state-by-state state level. And actually, the age structure of different states in India is really quite different. Um, I didn't realize until I started to do this quite how much variation there was mm -hmm. in terms of um, age between different states. And what you can do is you can try to estimate using international kind of analyses, what level of COVID mortality you would expect if you had, you know, say 20% of the population infected and it happened across all age groups in a particular state, how many deaths would you expect to occur? And then you can try to compare that with what occurred. And, um, and also you can try to compare that between states. And actually, that analysis does help to explain at least some of the variation that you see between states. So once you take age into account, you sometimes understand why one state appears to have been hit harder than another. Um, it's got an older population and, you know, hence is more vulnerable to um, higher numbers of deaths. Um, on the other hand, sometimes you also find in a way that a state has performed better once you factor in age. So like Kerala um, is actually a, quite an elderly state. And given the fact that it's quite an elderly state, you would expect quite high mortality. And relative to that, the mortality which has occurred has been um, comparatively low. I mean, as far as the data um, goes, which is still incomplete data. So um, I think you can try to take age into account. I don't think we have a map of comorbidities really, which um, would be very, uh, maybe maybe the data is there, you know, I, I don't feel knowledgeable enough to be sure, but I haven't come across data which would allow us to take that into account when we're looking across different states in India and say we expect higher mortality here or there. 
But um, perhaps as a kind of proxy for what to expect, you can also look at background, you know, baseline mortality. And that sometimes tells you a story in itself. Um, I'm not a demographer, so I don't understand all of the elements of those stories, but those, the baseline mortality sometimes tells you a story because you have a relatively young state, um, but comparatively high mortality, higher than you would expect given the youthful nature of a state. That probably suggests that health infrastructure is poor, that you have, um, at least in some states, infant mortality, which is too high. So um, you have a kind of estimate of, I suppose, how development is impacting mortality pre-pandemic. And then you can perhaps guess that during the pandemic, you would also see more mortality than you might expect from age structure. Yeah, I saw some, I don't know if it is robust enough to make any conclusions, but the, the, the time to infection uh, appears to be related to your your wealth, your class, and so on. Uh, not even uh, COVID is immune to the class system in India, it looks to me. Uh, in some sense, it makes sort of intuitive sense. So early on, the wealthy had the luxury of distancing and, and taking precautionary effects, and they they did not get infected. Uh, but the 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 second and third wave, they appeared to be more more um, infected. Uh, do, do you see that in the data? Yes. Um, I mean, you see at least parts of that story playing out in the data. And really, you have to focus in on a few cities, for example, to get a sense of what happened. So like Mumbai is a city which I've studied quite intensively, so I understand its data much better. Um, if you look at what happened in the early days of the epidemic, you had this very massive slum surge. So you had the poor being hit very fast and uh, you know, you see this both in, you see this in serosurvey data, which tells you how many infections there were roughly, and then you see it in mortality data, which shows a huge spike during May and June of 2020. Um, the same data also tells you that in housing societies, in, you know, the kind of middle class areas, yes, there was infection. I mean, Mumbai is a highly dense city, so in a way, it's not surprising that there was a significant level of infection, but nothing like the level that you saw in the slums. So the middle classes were relatively spared during that early period. But then Mumbai saw a second surge during 2020 itself towards the second half of the year, September and October. And during that, I think you had quite a lot of spread in housing societies. So you had, um, and you know, some of that resulting in deaths as well. So you had more mortality occurring in the latter part of the year. Um, so I think there was a kind of evening out which occurred. And then probably in the third surge, you know, 2021, this year, um, there was probably more of that story, but we don't yet have the data to fully unpack it. But I think you did see this thing that in the early days, um, probably middle class kind of communities managed to socially distance, managed to take kind of measures to reduce their risk in a way which working class people were unable to do. And so infection levels were lower. But I do get the strong impression that during the Delta wave, you've had some leveling of that occurring. Um, certainly when you look at Delhi, you had um, pl plenty of middle class people just anecdotally, I mean, speaking to almost anyone you know in Delhi, they lost someone or at least someone was hospitalized during this latest wave. And these are people who 
um, somehow had managed to escape during the first wave um, from that devastation. But I think it would probably be too simple to say that the first wave hit the, the poor and then the second wave kind of leveled out and hit the middle class as well, because I think the second wave also hit rural areas and the rural poor in a, first in a way which the first wave didn't. You know, so the first wave really hit um, urban areas more and slum populations within urban areas most of all, as far as we can tell from the data. And the second wave then hit more middle class areas and cities and it hit rural areas. So it wasn't that it was just hitting um, relatively wealthy people. It was also hitting a lot of very poor people. Um, and my worry is that a lot of those rural deaths will not get counted. I mean, the, the surveillance and the kind of mechanisms for recording those deaths is just not good enough. And we may never see the scale of that rural devastation that occurred in the second wave. So, so what's your sense of um, the factor one needs to apply <laughs> to the mortality, the official mortality rate that is reported by the country? Uh, you mentioned maybe a million people died in the first wave. Uh, what's your general sense? What, what right now, uh, 18 months or so into it, um, what do you think the total excess mortality, pandemic excess mortality in India is overall? So um, my estimates with Ashish Gupta up to the end of May were just coming up to 3 million. Um, depending on how you calculate it, there, there had been um, up to 3 million excess deaths. Um, and based on civil registration data, this is. And then if you looked up a little further, you went to the end of June. Um, because of delays in registration and various other factors, data from June was much more limited, but that seemed to rise quite a lot, possibly even to 4 million. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty with that. So considering that we're several months after that moment now, I would say that I would expect at least 4 million excess deaths as a kind of lower estimate for pandemic excess mortality in India up to this point. Um, in fact, I would suspect it was higher. Um, it's worth saying that actually that accords with a number of different analyses. So that's based, that's based on our analysis of civil registration data. But if you look at, for example, some survey data, um, you're seeing similar levels of excess mortality. Um, there are wide confidence intervals. There's wide uncertainty on some of the numbers, but you're seeing kind of similar levels ranging from, you know, three to six million, for example, excess deaths. If you look at um, data coming out from um, uh, something called the National Health Information Management. So um, it's kind of, it's data which monitors deaths in largely rural hospitals. You're seeing a big surge in mortality, particularly during the second wave. And I think people have done some estimates which come out to, with similar numbers for the scale of that. So, um, if, if you were to ask me for my best guess, I would say that we, by the end of June, we probably had something close to 4 million excess deaths in India. Um, it could well be higher now, even though the epidemic was tapering off, the second wave was tapering off, there was probably still some mortality to come and some delays in death registration, which would raise that number. How does that compare to the rest of the world, uh, especially the developed countries' uh, metrics? So if you one one way of trying to compare between countries is you take the total estimated excess mortality and you look at that as a percentage of annual mortality. And so this comes out as something like 40 to 45 percent of annual mortality um, in the pandemic. If there were four million excess deaths, I think that comes to something like 
43% of estimated annual deaths in the country. Um, so when you think that, you know, it's like half a year's worth of deaths almost in addition to what you would normally expect. Actually, that places India very much amongst the hardest hit countries in the world. Um, that's the kind of level that you see in Brazil. That's the kind of level that you see in South Africa, um, in, a, in Iran. It's less than some of the worst hit Latin American countries. So there are some countries in Latin America which have been so terribly devastated when you look at mortality data. So it's not quite in that league, but it's considerably worse than most of Europe and uh, the United States as well. So I think um, this would also accord roughly with what we expect, given our understanding of health infrastructure, given our understanding of mortality in normal times, pre-pandemic times. Um, India has been badly hit, perhaps not the worst hit country in the world, but amongst some of the worst hit countries in terms of excess mortality, particularly when you use this measure, um, you know, of the fraction of yearly deaths which have occurred over and above what you would expect. Um, and you're seeing something above 40 percent that really puts you amongst um, the worst hit countries. But so if I understand this correctly, uh, Murad, so you said so about deaths almost doubled from average long run rate, right? No, that, that's an overstatement. So um, so there were during the pandemic period of, in this case, I'm taking 16 months of pandemic, there were an extra roughly 40 to 45% of deaths that you would expect in one year of the yearly death toll. So it's, I mean, if you were to say, how much was the percentage surge over that period? It comes out to around 30 to 35% surge. So if you were to just say, I mean, to try to put it in a kind of um, understandable way, maybe, if you were to say, let's just take a typical crematorium or a typical graveyard across the country over the whole pandemic period, where they would normally have seen three cremations, they saw four over this period. There was an extra one. There was a one-third extra cremations or one-third extra burials which occurred. But over a long period of time, that adds up to a lot of deaths, right? I mean, to have this one-third extra um, deaths over a period of 16 months, which is the period we looked at, that adds up to, of course, a lot of deaths. Yeah, so if you compare this to some sort of infection mortality rate, um, so 4 million out of 1.4 billion, I don't know what that is, it's about 0.3% or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Oh, Little so 0.3%, so 0.3% of the people who got infected died. No, is, um, I, I would say point, it's, a, it's a bit more than that. It comes out as a little bit more than that, yeah. Right, but is that what we are finding elsewhere? Um, I know case mortality was more like 2%, which is, uh, as you say, it's only useful if you have all the cases counted. So we don't have an analogous proxy in India for that. But the excess mortality is sort of a, a proxy for infection mortality rate. So I was, just, I was trying to figure out is 0.3, you know, sort of on average what we are seeing around the world or not. It is kind of what you expect based on India's age structure. So age structure is crucially important um, when you're trying to make those comparisons. You know, um, just to be kind of, to, to understand the difference that you would expect between 
a country like Japan, let's say, and then a country in sub-Saharan Africa, it's, it's um, like a, not an order of magnitude, but like you'll have four or five times difference in the expected level of mortality simply because you've got a more of an elderly population. And in particular, it's the fraction of people who fall into the very old age groups which makes a big difference to the expected level of COVID mortality. COVID happens to be one of these diseases which hits um, the elderly particularly hard. So once you factor that in, and then you look at the level of mortality in India, it falls broadly into what you expect. So if you look at international studies, these what are called meta-analyses of fatality rates from around the world, and then you look at what's happened in terms of mortality in India, it's roughly what you expect. There's a large overlap with um, the expectations from these meta-analyses. The meta-analyses don't all agree themselves. You know, there's a range of expectations within these different data sets, but um, certainly what has been seen in India is consistent with that data. Is there any data on sort of the severe disease versus um, asymptomatic and mild infections cross-sectionally? Well, <laughs> Uh, there probably is more data that I'm not aware of. I mean, every now and then you'll see reports about the fraction of infections which were mild or asymptomatic relative to symptomatic and then relative to, say, hospitalized or more severe. But you don't have very kind of consistent tracking of that data um, across India. So quite often after a serosurvey, what you have is, you know, there will have been some question about did you experience any symptoms and people will answer no. And then based on that response, they'll say, okay, 95% of people were asymptomatic. I would just treat a lot of that with some caution because it's not always clear, you know, methodologically whether this is a sound way of estimating whether you know, someone was truly asymptomatic or not. It's not always clear whether they understand the range of things which might count as COVID symptoms, whether um, they have reasons why they would prefer not to say that they had been symptomatic and so forth. So I just feel that we don't, we would certainly expect more asymptomatic infection in a younger population, but we don't yet have a very accurate sense of what fraction of infections are asymptomatic, how many are mild, how many are moderate to severe, and then how many are, you know, very severe. Um, it would be the kind of data which would be very useful for trying to track something like long COVID as well, because um, there's probably some connection between having a worse case of COVID and longer lasting symptoms. Um, but I don't feel the data is good enough. It's one of those gaps. Yeah. So in conclusion, Murad, we, we talked a bit about future uh, policy implications, uh, but I want to ask you in conclusion, um, in the status quo in India, given everything that you know, everything that we know, what would be the right actions uh, to take in India today to, to sort of reduce the, the negative effects uh, going forward? So... I mean, I think that some of the things that are happening need to continue, like vaccination needs to occur as fast as possible. There's been some increase in speed, at least there, there are ups and downs in the rate of vaccination, and obviously that needs to be held at as high a level as is possible. Um, we need to see that as a major tool in the battle against whatever is to come next. You also need to have a kind of, um, I think, kind of managed surveillance system so that you can... Uh, for example, there isn't enough genome sequencing going on at the moment. Um, 
And if a new variant, for example, started to spread locally, I don't know what the delay would be before it was picked up nationally and the danger was recognized. So I think you need to constantly be working to improve that kind of surveillance as well for new variants. I think you need to be tracking, you need to have, like India doesn't have actually a national dashboard which tells you what's happening across the country, even with the standard things like cases and official fatalities. That was largely run by volunteers. And in fact, it's going to be shutting down soon, unfortunately. So you, you need to have a kind of transparency around the data that is being gathered. It just needs to be released so that the community of relatively independent scientists can scrutinize this data, can write down their own kind of um, protocols for tracking the data, for looking for upticks, uh, which might signal the start of some, you know, something new. Um, so you need to have just generally much better surveillance, whether that's genomic surveillance, whether that's surveillance on the basis of data, and obviously you need to have vaccination as fast as possible. And I think in the meantime, you people need to be aware that yes, India is, is in a better place than it was a few months ago, much, much better, but the dangers are not completely passed. And measures which are relatively easy to do, um, you know, keeping spaces, indoor spaces, well ventilated, trying to avoid unnecessary crowding, trying to um, make sure that people still wear masks in situations which are risky situations. Those need to continue um, until really people know where we are as much as possible. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Murad. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.